The Rockefeller Foundation advances new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on Twitter at RockefellerFDN. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. To mark the 25th anniversary of the UN Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing this month, Washington Post Live and the Rockefeller Foundation brought together some prominent global leaders to discuss where sustainable progress has been made for women and girls and where the most attention is needed to advance true equality. In this segment, we'll hear from UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. Good morning. Once again, I'm Francis Deed Sellers, and thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live's special program about accelerating progress for women and girls. It's my great pleasure now to introduce our first guest, Michelle Bachelet. She's the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Francis. Very happy to have this opportunity to talk on a very crucial and timely issue. Well, we're delighted to have you. Thank you for coming. I'd like to start by asking you from your vantage point as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, what is the status now for women and girls? And then more precisely, what are the urgent needs during the coronavirus pandemic? Well, as Hillary has said, since Beijing, 25 years afterwards, of course, we have had uh, progress, eh? but those progress have been slow and uneven. It's true, more women, more girls at schools. It's true also maternal mortality has declined. It's true we have had an increased number of parliamentarian and, and ministers uh, and women in, in, in political positions, but still we have one or three women that is experiencing violence in her lifetime, more than 800 women who die every day from preventable causes given birth, and of course on average men earn 63% more than women. So the current pandemic uh, has also highlighted the particular impact that it has on women. I mean, the virus does not differentiate anyone. Everybody can get, get it, but it impacts disproportionately certain groups and in particular women. You can also think if you can even make it more specific, older women, and of course, women living with disabilities and girls. And we have seen that um, it has increased the um, discrimination and inequalities that women had from before the COVID-19. So what we can see is the concentration of women in the informal sector with insecure and low paid jobs. For example, the burden of the unpaid childcare, the pervasiveness of the gender-based violence that has increased dramatically during lockdowns and confinements in all parts of the world. Uh, the continued exclusion from women in decision-making we would see in countries where they develop this committee to response of COVID-19 in very few there are women, the majority are only men. And also there is a resistance to women autonomies over their bodies and life. For example, many governments have declared that the uh, sexual reproductive health and services, uh, rights services are not essential. So they're not providing those uh, services to women or not providing shelters for women who are victims of violence. So we would say that also the pandemic has further increased reinforced gender inequality because it has widened as well poverty and education gender gap and we have seen more women losing their employment because of the kind of jobs they usually work on are very affected by the uh, recession but also as I said before because so many women work in the informal economy and they do not have access to social protection schemes so they really are in a very dire, dire situation but also 
gaps in education has affected uh, importantly uh, girls uh, and many girls don't have access to online education as well. Hi, Commissioner, you referenced the number of the growing number of women in leadership positions. And it's been striking during the pandemic that countries led by women from New Zealand to Germany and Finland have been praised for their response. What makes women leaders particularly effective? <laughs> well, you know, there's a discussion on this. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I've heard that from the 12 most successful countries, seven are led by women or eight. I think it's a mix of situations. First of all, uh, women, um, I mean, first of all, they, they have the same capacities of leading that men in terms of they can have, make strong decisions, they can be very decisive, but they can be very transparent on one hand, they speak with the truth, they prefer not to deny the problems, they prefer to say, look, this is a problem, this is the way we're gonna deal with it. They, they communicate it to the people, and they go to the people, they, they, they use their capacity to explain to the people why different measures are important. And we have different experiences from Angela Merkel talking to the Germans that maybe 60% of the Germans are going to be infected, to the Norwegian or, or the Finnish prime minister saying, going to the children, explaining to the children which are the measures that need to be done. So I would say innovative way, transparency, um, decisive actions, so none of those uh, uh, stereotypes uh, that say that women cannot be good leaders have been shown clearly on, on this COVID-19 response. You are one of 25 leaders in a group that uh, Secretary Clinton just referred to, um, providing a sort of update on the, on the 25th anniversary of that famous Beijing Women's Conference. Can you tell us about your findings and recommendations? Well, yes, I mean, we, I think we still need to go further in terms of uh, which are the most pressing needs for, for, for advance. One is, as, as Hillary was mentioning, gender norms, because it remains hard to change the culture or the deep-rooted discriminatory social norms, beliefs and stereotypes about women, about women's roles, about women's characteristics. Uh, this underlies all discrimination, for example, in political participation, the false idea that women are weaker, that are not suited to, to rule, that they're too emotional, and they do not have attributes that uh, are considered necessary for leadership like strengthening and decisiveness. And I was just mentioning that we have concrete, the complete different reality. I think backlash as well, because women's rights and human rights generally have been under attack for quite some time now. And this, uh, and we have seen efforts to diminish funding for women's rights organizations, to remove comprehensive sex education, to change the definition of gender to a binary concept, to reduce access to uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights services for women, to prohibit gender studies. Uh, so there's unmet harmful gender stereotypes and social norms about the natural roles of women and men. Violence remains a very silent and pervasive crisis, and this includes physical, mental, sexual, financial violence, of course, femicide, harmful practices, and more. And the other thing is, as I said, SRHR, I mean, there's a failure to secure um, care on sexual and reproductive health and rights to protect bodily autonomy, and what would it mean? And it will mean also with the COVID-19 that we will have hundreds of thousands of women who will die each year of complications of pregnancy, probably will increase the number of child marriage. And, and of course, there's a lot of women who will be also victims of slavery, even for sexual uh, human trafficking and sexual slavery. 
uh, we had there is an increase in child marriage and pregnancy. The other very important thing for me is economic inequality. We really need to deal with the issue that women. I mean, and even not only. I mean, even professional. What I have seen in some uh, news is that women, because of they have three kids, they have to stop working the whole day. They working part time. That will mean less incomes and less possibilities probably. But the majority of women in the world and the majority of the people in the world work in the informal economy. They earn less. They save less. They don't. They hold less secure jobs. They have less access to social protection. So the capacity of absorbing economic shocks, uh, shocks is much less than 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 men. And, and according to WAF, I mean the World Economic Forum, it will take 257 years before men and women receive equal pay for equal job. That's very bad. Of course, political participation. We already talked about that. And finally, peace and security. I would say there's still a global lack of progress in realizing women's rights to equally and meaningfully participating in conflict. When I was at UN Women, the executive director, and I asked, why, why don't we have more peace, women peace mediators? They told me there's not enough peace mediators. And I said, that's not possible. Let's build a roster. I'm sure there's great women who can make a great difference. But now we still have only 13% of the negotiators are women. So I think there's many issues where we need to continue uh, pushing forward so women can contribute with all its capacity, skills, and experiences. So on this question of pushing forward or retreat or backsliding, I'd like to ask you a little about the the, the sad issue that's taken Secretary Clinton from us today, and that's the death of, of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was such a trailblazer for women's rights. Um, many women in the United States are concerned this could could be the beginning of backsliding for or a continuation of backsliding for women's rights. Do you see that as a problem internationally and nationally? I have the seen it. I have, I have seen this backslide and I have the honor to meet uh, Justice Ruth Ginsburg and uh, she was a fantastic woman and uh, when I was at UN Women and I think, I mean, of course, it's important that we have women that do believe in women in important positions because I have met women who think that they are good because they're good and, and they believe that uh, they, they don't understand the need to open more spaces for women in the decision making, in the boards uh, of, of companies, in every place where you are taking good decisions. So there is a risk of backsliding. There is a risk, as I said as well, on, on backsliding and the progress of women um, participation in the, in, the, in, in the labor market. And, and there is a uh, and there is the the excuse that could be used against women because of COVID-19 that could permit put women in a weaker position. But that's why we should not give up, <laughs> and we should to continue advocating and, and showing. And I always said, look, one of the conclusions we should take of COVID-19, which is of course the majority of the health workers were women, and we applauded them, and for many months we applauded them every day, every night. But we have much more than that. We have women in essential services. We have women also leaders and we need to recognize. And one of the things that we need to come after COVID-19 is to build back better. And build back Commissioner better means... I'd love to ask yeah. you now a question about the rise of authoritarianism, which I think is something we're seeing in many countries around the world. Um, you were a prisoner. You were held a as a political prisoner. I believe even had a, a hood put over your head. Um, do you see the rounding up of protesters in this country by unidentified government forces as a threat of fascism rising here? 
Well, I think in every place where you can have uh, uh, the possibility of groups that are violent, that do not respect democracy, who are racist, who do not respect uh, the freedom of, of the people, who do not respect diversity, there is risk of going into not a democratic way. I don't know if we could call it fascism, but clearly not the right direction. So do you see a link between authoritarian regimes and uh, the oppression of women? There is indeed, there is. We see that directly. Usually authoritarian regimes do not respect women's rights and women are, are, are discriminated in a very important way. That doesn't mean that in all democratic governments they do that, 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 that different, but, uh, but at least I, we have seen that, that relationship between authoritarian, many of them very nationalist, uh, uh, very, um, if I would say, endogamist uh, regimes, and, and they don't give the space to women and they're losing the contribution of women. And let me ask you a question that's coming from our audience. Um, this is from Noel Connolly from Washington State in the United States, who asks, I'm going to read it to you, are traditional values and women's equality inherently at odds? If not, how can we demonstrate that, that to communities that may perceive these values in conflict? Well, I don't know what, I mean, I think that you can have traditional values that are positive and you can have traditional values that are negative because in, in the past slavery was something that was norm a norm but of course we we, we, are, we have evolved a society and on the other hand I think the best way that society can perceive that women's equality and women's empowerment is essential is when you can show uh, not only speak about women's rights but also speak about how to work with women in terms of giving them the space they, they deserve, it's also the smart thing to do. And to show the great examples that you can find fantastic women everywhere in the communities, in, in, the, in the working place, in, in, the, in the social sectors, in, in the, well, of course, in, in different, in, different in, in, in government, in local governments, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the best way to convince people that women's equality is essential and is crucial for a well-developed democracy. I have one last question for you, High Commissioner, before we, I'm afraid we have to finish. Um, you called earlier this year for um, reparations for the United States to make amends for slavery. Do you think the perception of the United States has changed around the world as a liberal democracy? How does the rest of the world see us? Well, um, I, we have seen some studies and surveys that have shown that the perception on the U.S. has changed uh, from countries. Many countries who used to be uh, to have a, a very were very fond of the U.S. Now they they have a, a different perception, not as good as before. And and I think that uh, that what people want from the U.S. is a U.S. who is more engaged with the world, who understands that nobody's going to solve their problems by themselves. That even the COVID-19 has shown us that no one is going to save themselves if everyone is, if not everyone is safe, and and that and I think people are expecting that from the U.S. a commitment to everyone, uh, to be a leader in terms of democratic values, in terms of um, anti-racism, in terms of uh, ensuring freedom of uh, freedom not only in the speech but in the reality in terms of gender equality of access to. Uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights services, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what people in the world want to see again in the U.S.
UN High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, uh, Francis. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.